Well, in the mid-1700s, there was a young man at 16 years of age named Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson. And one article I read a few weeks ago about Robert said that he was, quote, running with the wrong crowd when he went by chance to hear the celebrated 37-year-old evangelist George Whitfield preach in London in May, on May 24, 1752. Three and a half years later, in December 1755, Robinson became a Christian, and I love how the article put it, he, quote, found full and free forgiveness through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He soon began preaching for Methodist churches and Baptist churches in the area around Norwich and Cambridge, and in, in May 1758, at 22 years old, Robert penned a hymn that we sing even today. And my wife Whitney and I, we even had it in our wedding. And I'm sure you'll recognize it. I'm not going to read it or sing it like Jeff did uh, his song a few months ago. But you'll, you'll know it for sure. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's redeeming love. And though our text this morning took place thousands of years before this hymn was written, we will see that the truth about our God hasn't changed. The God who was the giver of all blessings to Mr. Robinson in the gospel was the same God abundant in bestowing blessing upon young Joseph. And he's the same God who's the giver of all blessing even this very day. So with all that being said, turn with me to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. And we'll be picking up uh, just with the first six verses here. Genesis 39, beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. We're going to see in our text this morning that the Lord alone is the giver of all blessing. The Lord alone is the giver of all blessing. First, we're going to see the setting of the blessing. The setting of the blessing. If you look down again at Genesis 39.1, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So if you recall from chapter 37, Joseph was 17 years of age when these events occur. Jacob, his father, favors Joseph over his other brothers, and he makes him this multicolored, this very colored tunic. Joseph then has two dreams, and he shares both of those dreams with his brothers. Now, in these dreams, there's two analogies given, and the point of both analogies is unmistakable. Joseph would reign and be exalted over his brothers. 
Now you can imagine how these brothers, the older brothers, mind you, would have taken that. I'm sure they said, I knew it, Joseph, you're the best. I had a feeling it would be you. (laughs) But we all know how the brothers reacted. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 37, verse 4. We're just going to briefly walk through here. Verse 4 tells us that they hated Joseph, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Literally, they could not speak to him in peace. Now, if you look down at verse 11, it also tells us that the brothers were jealous of Joseph. You see, sin was crouching at each of the doors of the brothers' hearts, like their ancestor Cain of old, and its desire was to master them, and they succumbed to that temptation. As their ancestor Adam had succumbed to the temptation of sin in the garden, so these brothers succumbed to the temptation of sin in the field of Dothan. Well, how did it end? Well, the brothers crafted a plan, very simple. Kill Joseph and throw him into the pit. That simple. Then deceive Jacob, his father, that he had been devoured. You see, in the same way that the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus out of envy and then throw the father's beloved son out of the vineyard, so these jealous brothers conceived a plot against Jacob's favored darling son. Reuben, of course, intercedes. He persuades his brothers, let's just throw him into the pit, hoping to rescue him and bring him back to his father's good graces. And after doing so, the brothers sit down to eat a meal, callously, coldly, apathetically, eating a meal while Joseph suffers in a pit. But lo and behold, it just so happens that an Ishmaelite caravan comes traveling down the road. The brothers see it coming, and Judah speaks up. If you look at verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. How gracious, right? And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Success. The brothers' plot was now halfway successful. They ridded themselves of this dreamer, but then how would they trick their father? Well, Joseph's brothers dip his tunic in the blood of a goat and show it off to their father. The last verses of the chapter tell us the gut-wrenching reaction of Jacob over his beloved son, whom he thinks is dead. If you look at verse 33, and we'll read it through the end, then he, and that's Jacob here, he examined it, the garment, and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So after chapter 37 ends, Moses, the author of Genesis, makes an aside about Joseph's brother Judah. Chapter 38 is extremely important because it shows the history of the line of Judah. Through his daughter-in-law Tamar, Judah had two sons, Perez and Zerah. From Perez comes Hezron, and as we find out later through the scriptures, eventually comes King David, and then ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But since this doesn't directly pertain to the life of Joseph, the, the teachers of the class decided to skip over it and move straight to chapter 39. 
So this morning, our text begins in chapters 39, and I'm going to read verse 1 for you just one more time, and then we'll dig into the details. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. You see, Egypt was the place to which the Ishmaelites had brought Joseph down, and Egypt was the place that God would use as a theater for his blessing. The Unger's Bible Dictionary says that in ancient times, Egypt consisted mainly of the narrow strip of land watered by the Nile extending from the Memphis and so-called Delta. It continues on and says this gave rise to the term Upper Egypt, which you've probably heard of that before, denoting the long, narrow, fertile valley, and then Lower Egypt, constituting the Delta. So we see where Egypt was located, but I want to show you the state of the nation at the time of Joseph. I want to show you it in two ways, politically and religiously. In other words, what was the flavor, what was the character of this place in which God, the fountain of all blessing, would glorify himself by blessing this man, Joseph? So I want to provide you with a little bit of a historical perspective. As Joseph was being brought from the land of Canaan by the Ishmaelites, he would have entered Egypt during the days of its strong middle kingdom. And you can kind of see on the map the field of Dothan, and then numbers 4 and 5 are him traveling down to Egypt. But this would have taken place during Egypt's strong middle kingdom, or Egypt's 12th dynasty, uh, based on some of the things I found out about it. During this time, literature was being developed. Proverbs were written by Pharaoh to his son. Geographical expansion of the nation was occurring. Mining was being developed. There was heavy commercial activity, and there was even a canal constructed to connect the Nile with the Red Sea. Perhaps as Joseph was traveling down with the Ishmaelites, he had never seen such wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. But despite the impressiveness of the structures, despite the beauty of the artwork, despite the aroma of successful commerce in the air, there was something else going on that would make any true believer in the Lord absolutely nauseated, sick inside. Idolatry. Idolatry. This leads to the second historical point, which is what was Egypt like religiously? Well, again, Unger's Bible Dictionary says, quote, I I really like this description, the Egyptian religion was an utterly polytheistic conglomeration in which many deities of the earliest periods were retained. You see, into this land of idolatry walks the Saint Joseph. Into this cesspool of idolatrous foolishness tumbles our main character. Into this desolate and parched land for truth, God will pour out blessing upon Joseph. Remember, idolatry was still in the family via Abraham's siblings. We even see it trickle down from them to Laban, who's the brother of Rebekah, the father of Rachel. In fact, we even see Rachel steal Laban's household idols when Jacob takes his family and and flees. Now, to Jacob's credit, of course, he rids his family of these false gods. But in Joseph's mind, idolatry would have been extremely prohibited, absolutely forbidden, This young 17-year-old boy had been kidnapped from the land he had always known and been brought to a vastly different land. This country, this Egypt, while impressive in its scope of worldly achievements, was also no doubt accomplished in its taste for wickedness, most obviously, most apparently, idolatry. And remember, there's no parental supervision on Joseph at this point in his life. All the odds were against Joseph from a human perspective. Joseph came from a dysfunctional family, 
As we learned, his father had four different wives. His brother committed incest. Two brothers deceived and killed an entire population in one city in Shechem. And even his precious sister was raped. With the bar set so low, how easy would it have been for Joseph to make excuses? How easy would it have been for Joseph to simply go with the flow? But Joseph, to whom Pharaoh would later command Egypt to bow the knee to, refuses himself to to bow the knee to any God except Yahweh alone, the one true and everlasting God. You see, the principle implicit to Joseph finds an explicit expression, manifestation in Jonah 2.8. Remember, Jonah cries out from the belly of the sea monster, and one of the things that he says is, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But Joseph did not regard vain idols. Joseph did not forsake his faithfulness. Joseph kept his eyes directly ahead. It's as if he had no compromise tattooed across his chest. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace and yet suffered no harm, so this Joseph, a true follower of Yahweh, was thrown into this furnace of affliction, thrown into this cauldron of idolatry in Egypt, and yet suffered no harm to his soul. I love what Psalm 41.12 says. The psalmist prays to the Lord, and he says, As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. I love that. You see, despite being safe from his brothers, Joseph was still far from free. Joseph goes from being his father's favorite to a nameless number in a slave sale. And we can picture all this play out before our eyes. This human auction. Joseph's on one side, and in comes a man named Potiphar. Now this Potiphar is named after the false Egyptian god, Ra. Potiphar's name literally means whom Ra has given. And our text tells us that this man was the captain of the king's bodyguard. Our text says that the Ishmaelite traders had brought Joseph down, and Potiphar is the one who bought him from the traders. That's what our text tells us. But we know from later portions of Genesis that it was Yahweh himself all along moving hearts. It was Yahweh himself orchestrating all the minute circumstances so that he and he alone demonstrates that he works all things after the counsel of his will and that he alone is the giver, that he alone is the fountain of all blessing. So the stage on which the blessing of the Lord will come is at an unexpected location, Egypt, a land of idolatry, a land of darkness. But look with me now at the source of the blessing, the source of the blessing. We saw the setting, the source of the blessing. Read along with me uh, looking at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. See, it really is such a relief coming to that verse after reading verse 1, after reading chapter 37. What a sharp juxtaposition we come to here. This is truly a fountain of blessing in a land of forgetfulness for Joseph. And we see the blessed source, God himself, Our text tells us the Lord was with Joseph. We can read over these words but fail to really see the impressiveness of them, the bigness of them. So often, our thoughts of God, my thoughts of God, are way too low. So often, we subtly think that God is just like us. As Martin Luther once said, your thoughts about God are all too human. You see, the Lord is not at all like the gods of the Egyptians. 
So this morning, I want to stir up your hearts and stir up my heart to behold how glorious God is, the God that we know and that knows us if we're in Christ. This being is the God who has blessed us and called us by name. This Lord is he who has revealed himself to us perfectly in his word. So when we read in our text that the Lord was with Joseph, don't conceive of a God of generalities in your mind, uh, in God we trust kind of nebulous idea of God. This is the God of scripture. So think of it like this. The all-powerful Yahweh was with Joseph. The all-wise Yahweh was with Joseph. The sovereign Yahweh was with Joseph. The authoritative Yahweh was with Joseph. The covenant-keeping Yahweh was with Joseph. This holy one was the same one with Joseph in his lowly estate in Egypt. You see, the God who has all power in his hands, the God who has all wisdom in his mind, the God who has all authority in his scepter was with Joseph in Egypt. And yet we see another reality about God in our text, and that's his his kind-heartedness, his big-heartedness. See, the Most High God was not only cognizant of Joseph's state, but he was with him in his low estate. You see, if your view of God, if my view of God is too small, then we can just pass over this statement, the Lord was with Joseph. Yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that. But this should mean the world to us when we read this about Joseph. If we see God clothed in the glorious terms of our Bibles, then we begin to see the breathtaking statement that this very Yahweh was with his poor servant Joseph. The high and holy one who dwells on high also dwelt with his humble servant on the earth. You see, no matter what circumstances you or I encounter as a Christian, the Lord is with us. That's not just something you read on a nice little Hallmark card. That's reality. The Lord is with his people. So we've seen who it was that was with Joseph, no one less than the Lord himself. But look at the blessed effect. In other words, what was the byproduct of the Lord being with Joseph? Look down at verse 2. So, so he, that is Joseph, became a successful man. You see, the one who has all power in himself, the one who has all sovereignty in himself, the God who has all delightfulness and blessedness in himself is the direct cause of Joseph's success. It's a wonderful thing that he who sits enthroned in the heavens, the one who fills the heavens and the earth, would be with his people, would be with you, would be with me if we're in Christ. Just a few verses to confirm this. Uh, Isaiah 41.10, a brother encouraged me with this just last night. God tells his people, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will also help you. I will also uphold you with my righteous right hand. Acts 2.25, for David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Or even think of the well-known Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, think even of our Lord Jesus Christ's last words In the book of Matthew, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Joseph may not have felt anything experientially, even though the Lord was with him. He may not have had feelings in his heart that the Lord was with him, any warm feelings. But many saints throughout history have experienced that. You might experience that. I've experienced that. But listen to Isaiah 50, verse 10. 
This verse has been such an encouragement to me the past few years. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? What should they do? Well, the text tells us, the very next part of the verse, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You see, even when we feel like we're walking in darkness, even when we feel like Joseph entering the land of Egypt, we must keep trusting in the promises of God. We must keep rehearsing the promises and the character of God, the God of all blessing. You see, in Joseph's case, the manifestation of God being with him showed itself in Joseph becoming a successful man. At times, the Lord still showers that particular blessing on his people today. See, if you have any sort of success at work, if you have any favor at work with your boss, that's not in your own power. That's not in my own power. That's not our own prowess or ingenuity or anything else. It's the hand of God. I mean, think of even King Nebuchadnezzar. You picture him gazing out upon his kingdom, heart swelled with pride. And what does he say? He says, is this not Babylon the Great? which I myself, look at that focus, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? What does God do to such a man? Well, he made Nebuchadnezzar like the beast of the field. And why did he make Nebuchadnezzar like that? Well, Daniel tells us, because that king did not recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So if God has given you favor at work, if God's given you success at work, bless him for it, thank him for it, but never compromise for it. Don't be faithful with it. But we have to keep in mind that that's not always the case, that God, how God deals with his people. I mean, just think of the Apostle Paul. Think of all the apostles. My wife and I get the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Believers throughout history are being persecuted, and they cry out, How long, O Lord? Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But I love what, what commentator Alfred Edersheim says. He says, quote, It is a common mistake to suppose that earnest religion and uprightness must necessarily be attended by success, even in this world. It is indeed true that God will not withhold any good thing from those whose son and shield he is. But then Edersheim continues and says, But then success may not always be a good thing for them. See, enslaved, kidnapped, and humble Joseph undeservedly received blessing from the God's hand to be successful. Our text, Genesis 39, 1-6, doesn't actually say anything explicitly regarding Joseph's work or his work ethic. Though we know he had to be an excellent worker just due to the impossibility of the contrary, God wouldn't bless a lazy parked car but we can imagine Joseph was always working heartily as unto the Lord, as Paul tells us. Strong work ethic, faithfulness, honesty, integrity would have been written all over Joseph's LinkedIn. Now, what would Joseph's like that? <laughs> what would Joseph's work have looked like practically? Well, there have been paintings and sculptures that have been found on Egyptian tombs that give an indication of what it would have probably looked like what I found was that there was probably methodical and minute supervision. Joseph probably had the function of a scribe. He perhaps saw, oversaw fishing and livestock, agriculture, gardening, and he would have probably checked each product of the laborers to confirm either their honesty or dishonesty. As one person said, I really like this, Joseph's previous knowledge of tending flocks and perhaps of husbandry 
and his truthful character exactly fitted him for the post of overseer. And then he adds how long he filled it, we're not told. We don't know how long Joseph had this position. But again, the text is not ultimately focusing our attention on the faithfulness from Joseph or the blessings that flowed from Joseph as if Joseph was the source. Rather, the faithfulness, the focus on faithfulness and blessing is on the Lord. The focus of Genesis 39, 1-6 is look at what God did. Look how sovereign God is. Look how faithful and covenant-keeping God is. Look how gracious God is. And as we see later in Genesis, look at how infinitely wise God is in allowing this time for Joseph as a stepping stone to get Joseph into a position of authority in Egypt. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You see, anytime God gives his people success in their labors, it's not an end in itself. But Psalm 67 gives us the end. So you can turn there. It's not a very long psalm, so it may not be worth your time. I want to save your thumbs for later. But um, Psalm 67, I'll just begin reading it in a second here. Um, This was read at a uh, missions conference a few years ago. And uh, the, the man preaching, I think it was Paul Brown, went over this, and it was so helpful. Psalm 67. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. So that's the first time it shows up, that your way may be known on the earth. Your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now this is the important part I want you to focus on. The earth has yielded its produce. God our God blesses us. God blesses us. But the psalm doesn't end there with an amen. It says that all the ends of the earth may fear him. That's the reason God blesses us, that all the ends of the earth may fear him, may know him, may worship him. So we ought to thank God for his provision in our life, zealously thank God, but it shouldn't stop there. We should then zealously look for opportunities to give, zealously look for opportunities to serve, to sacrifice for his namesake, for his glory. You see, God, who is the giver of all blessing, is not one of the benefactors for Joseph. He's the sole benefactor for Joseph. As Psalm 121 says, I'm sure many of you are familiar, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You see, Joseph could have attempted to build up Potiphar's house in his own strength, by his own might, like Nebuchadnezzar. Joseph could have attempted to guard Potiphar's possessions in his own strength. But as another psalm says, had not the Lord been on his side, if the giver of all blessing wasn't with Joseph, it would fail. But the Lord was with Joseph, and God gave to Joseph the blessing of success. And we see next the place of the blessing, or the blessed location. It's not on my outline, it's sort of a sub-point. It's Potiphar's house. Potiphar's house was the blessed location was the theater that God constructed to make a name for himself. Our text tells us, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now to be sure, God is absolutely merciless to false gods. 
He even systematically destroyed the false gods of Egypt, one false god after another with each plague. However, though God hates all false gods, including Ra, and all worship associated with Ra, yet he shows such kindness to Potiphar, the the man named after Ra, and who was no doubt a worshiper of Ra. You see, God is truly the giver of even physical blessings to sinners, what a sharp juxtaposition to the false gods of the nations. What a testimony to God's individual kindnesses, even to unbelievers, even to the non-elect. I mean, Jesus himself tells us that God causes his reign to fall on the evil and the good. Your pagan neighbor's house gets rain, and your house gets rain, because God is just kind. And as we learn from Romans, it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. Look at this glorious God that I've sinned against that has done nothing but good to me. He is so kind. Now to be sure, all of those outside of Christ will spend an eternity, as Tom said this morning, in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. But during those people's lives, God is abundantly kind to them, wishing that none should perish but all should come to repentance. But what a clear connection there was here between Joseph and the God of Joseph. This leads us to our third point. We've seen the setting of the blessing, which is Egypt, the source of the blessing, the Lord himself. Now we come to the third point, the seeing of the blessing. The seeing of the blessing. Look at verse 3 with me. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. You see, Potiphar sees that God is with Joseph. But how? How would Potiphar have seen that God was with Joseph? Well, the most obvious way was in how Joseph carried out his duties and in his subsequent abundant success in the midst of those duties. So we have to assume that Joseph was being faithful. He was faithful with little, and the Lord entrusted him with much. And there's really a a big application point for all of us here. If you want to write down Luke 16.10, Jesus says this, It's easy to skip over. It's easy to not focus on and be just convicted when you run into it during your daily Bible reading. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. You see, perhaps you don't like your job. I've been there. I haven't liked jobs in the past. Perhaps parenting is difficult for you right now. Perhaps you wish things in your family or things in your church were different, but does that tempt you to be unfaithful? Remember, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and the Lord rewards his faithful servants, no matter how many. Secondly, we can also assume that Joseph was industrious, just like King Jeroboam centuries later. But remember, industriousness isn't intrinsically good, just like we see in Jeroboam's case. People can be industrious at wickedness. But to have a redeemed saint who's industrious, working for a coworker, that's a blessing indeed. So are you industrious at your job? Are you industrious in your home? What about tasks that you ought to do, but it, you find it harder to sort of rouse up yourself to do them? See, we underestimate, I can underestimate a lot of the time, what a testimony it can be when we make much of God in the workplace and then adorn that profession with an industrious disposition. We're not lazy Christians in the workplace. So that's Joseph, but let's look over at Potiphar for a second. 
You see, verse 3 could have said that the Lord was with Joseph and just state it just like it said. But the focus here is a little, a little bit more nuanced. It focuses on how obvious it was that this pagan Potiphar himself sees that the hand of the Lord is in this. It doesn't just say the Lord was with Joseph. It says now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. You see, Joseph's master gets it. Potiphar understands not only is the Lord with Joseph, but this same Lord is making all the activities Joseph does to prosper. Now, this idea of prospering, we see it throughout the book of Genesis. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 12, very foundational text in Genesis, God promises to build Abraham a nation through his descendants that will in turn bless the world. So in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12, this is what God promises Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And by the time you get to Jacob, this emphasis on prospering becomes more frequent and more pronounced. I'm just going to read for you these three verses. You can write them down if you want. They're all about Jacob. Genesis 30, 42. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Genesis 32, 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. Genesis 32, 12. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. You see, even later in the chapter, we see this concept of prospering play out in Joseph's life. After he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Joseph is then thrown into a prison. But even there, the fountain of all blessing pours out his blessings and demonstrates his faithfulness to Joseph. You see, even if Joseph was falsely, erroneously accused by this Jezebel of a woman, God would even be here with Joseph in the prison and would prosper him. So look at Genesis 39, beginning in verse 20. Whoever's teaching this, I'm sorry, but um, in verse 20, uh, so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph, we saw that earlier, and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Psalm 1 comes to mind. <clears throat> so Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord made all that Joseph did to prosper. But what was the summation of all this? Where did all of this terminate? What was the result of the blessing? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. Number 4 on the outline is the result and duration of the blessing. The result and the duration of the blessing. If you look at verse 4, it says, So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time 
he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. So four things really resulted, at least, from God giving Joseph such blessing. One, Joseph finds favor. Number two, Joseph becomes Potiphar's personal servant. Number three, Joseph is made overseer over Potiphar's house. Number four, Joseph is made overseer over all of Potiphar's possessions. Just as Queen Esther would find favor in King Ahasuerus' eyes centuries later, Joseph finds favor in the eyes of the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Look again at verse 5, and you see the excellent timing of the blessing. It uses the, the phrase, from the time, from the time. You see, there's no discrepancy in the timing here. There's no span of time in which Potiphar could chalk up Joseph's success to mere coincidence. There is a very clear delineation. From the time Potiphar made Joseph overseer over all his things, the Lord blessed Potiphar's house. In this case, it was not sowing and then waiting four months until the harvest and then reaping. The day that Potiphar sowed Joseph as overseer of his things to the very day the Lord allowed Potiphar to reap the benefits. So there was no doubt in Potiphar's mind that there was a direct connection between God and this blessing via Joseph. It was painstakingly clear the connection between the giver and the gift. So we saw the blessed timing. Look at the blessed and excellent overseer. Potiphar's decision was truly lucrative. It was a smart business decision. Really anyone in his position, you or I, would have done the exact same thing just practically. But again, lest we're tempted to focus on Joseph as possessing some sort of powers within himself, our text stresses that it was God who was giving the blessing. You see, just as the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream later on down the road, that interpretation wasn't in Joseph, so also this power to make wealth for his master, for Potiphar, was not in him, but in God. So our text says that Potiphar was the one that made Joseph the overseer, and that's absolutely true. But there's a paradoxical reality that God himself is the one that made Joseph overseer. And thus God demonstrates himself to be the supreme overseer in all these events. But why? Why would the Lord bless the Egyptian's household on account of Joseph? Well, again, remember the blessing we read in Genesis 12? I'll just read the, the last verse for you. God says, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I love what one commentator said about it. He's talking about the uh, prosperity that was attained by Joseph. And he says, this was not any ordinary prosperity. It was phenomenal and unexpected. Because this man, Potiphar, recognized the work of the Lord and honored Joseph. The Lord blessed his household. And then he just says this, and it's excellent. The text illustrates then the promise that whoever blessed the seed of Abraham would be blessed, which is what we read in Genesis 12. He, he goes on to say, Potiphar trusted Joseph and enjoyed a share in the divine blessing of the lad. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. But let's move on to our last point, the extensiveness of the blessing. The extensiveness of the blessing this is about halfway through verse 5 and continues through uh, halfway of verse 6. So it says here, Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. 
So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Again, we see repeated stress given to the giver of the blessing. It's all about the Lord. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. And not only do we see credit again given to the Lord for his blessing, but we also see the realms of the blessing, or as point five says, the extensiveness of the blessing. Just a perusal of our text, all things were part of this blessing. Inside things, outside things, everything. And our text goes through great pains to tell us this. Generally, it says that he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And then specifically, it gives a couple different realms, in the house and in the field. And Joseph himself affirms this to Potiphar's wife when he says, there's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. You see, our God is the God of all the earth. He's not restricted in whom he gives blessings to, in which way he gives those blessings, in which order he gives those blessings, in which location or locations he gives those blessings. Whether it's inside the house or whether it's outside the house, it can ultimately be traced back up to God, the author of that blessing. Even in your own house or in your own yard, anything that you look at and see, you can give praise to God because he is the giver of that. It comes directly from his hand. And one more brief point on verse 6. If you look down at it again, it says, And with him, Joseph, there he, Potiphar, did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. That may seem kind of odd to us in a 21st century context to hear that kind of comment at the end of our text. Uh, Most likely, based on the research I did, it has to do with ritual preparation during that time. But nonetheless, with this notable exception, all else was in Joseph's responsible hands. What trust Potiphar had of Joseph. What a testimony this must have been to this pagan bodyguard. See, there's perhaps very few gifts you can give someone more valuable than your personal trust. And though our text, Genesis 39, starts so abysmally with Joseph as a slave in Egypt, things finally seem to be looking up. The Lord blesses Joseph. The Lord gives Joseph favor. The Lord makes Joseph successful. The Lord makes Joseph even the overseer above all Potiphar's house. You might ask the question, could things get any better for Joseph? You see, the son of external blessing had risen on Joseph at the beginning of our text. But by the time we get to its close in verse 6, we hear the ominous warning bells of Joseph's next valley. As R. Kent Hughes says, quote, Potiphar was so confident that Joseph had his best interests at heart, that even his wife was under Joseph's benign care. Beware of Mrs. Potiphar's hand, Joseph. Likewise, or likely, Potiphar's chief slave was the envy of the Egyptian Riviera. And Rod will tell you more about that section in Genesis 39 next week. But as we come to a close, think with me now of the preparations in Joseph's life that came from this blessing of the Lord. It doesn't seem like a blessing, but think of all the things that accrued to Joseph. How did these blessings upon Potiphar and the subsequent changes in Joseph's life prepare the way for coming events? You see, unbeknownst to Joseph, this overseeing occupation would be indispensable for the similar task he would have as second in command in Egypt. God didn't immediately make Joseph reign as a 17-year-old boy. Quite honestly, kind of a brat kind of a childish brat on a throne. Like leaven, 
Slowly and perceptibly, God directed the movements of all parties involved to accomplish his ends. I mean, even just reading our text today, these events fold in the most natural way. And yet, even if one part is missing, the whole structure, the whole narrative turns to dust. Just as in the book of Esther, the name of God isn't even mentioned once, and yet he is the one guiding all events with his skillful hands. He's the one providing favor. He's the one providing blessing. He's the one moving one person here and one person there. There's so many circumstances where it seems to be, oh, it just so happened that, I mean, even in your own, in your own life, and yet it's the Lord directing it all, all along. So God's ways are so indescribable that most of the time we're oblivious to them. And what does this show us but that God alone could have done this and that God alone gets the glory? Yet there's another preparation that derives from God's blessing, and specifically that's growth in Joseph's character. Growth in Joseph's character. You see, Joseph had to learn hard work. He had to learn faithfulness in the midst of trials. He had to learn practical skills. He had to learn managing and assigning tasks. He had to learn, as we learn next week, how to be faithful in the midst of temptation. He had to learn not to blame circumstances for behavior. He had to learn that part of being faithful, and this is huge, is doing mundane, small tasks well, faithfully, with precision. You see, there are some things that can only be accomplished by blood, sweat, tears, and time. And though the shortest distance between two locations is always a straight line, God often uses a longer route from our perspective to accomplish things in our lives that would not, that could not be accomplished otherwise. And yet this route is always the best route. Should a child question his father on his driving if he thought the trip was taking too long? Of course not. I probably did as a kid, but that was foolishness. Of course not. We ought to trust God that even when our road seems long, even when our road seems weary, when it seems full of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness, we must remember that if we're in Christ, every bruise, every anguish, every trial, every temptation, every tear is all utilized by God to work together for our good. And what is our good but to be conformed to the image of Christ? There's no spare parts in God's workshop, in other words. I could not conclude better than these words from Edersheim. Quote, All parties were allowed in the free exercise of their own choice to follow their course, ignorant that all the while they were only contributing their share toward the fulfillment of God's purposes. And in this lies the mystery of divine providence, that it always worketh wonders, yet without seeming to work at all. Whence also it so often escapes the observations of men. Silently and unobserved by those who live and act, it pursues its course till in the end all things are seen to work together for the glory of God and for good to them that love God that are the called according to his purpose. Now in terms of application, I just have three brief applications. Number one, know the blessings of God in your life. Be aware of the blessings of God in your life. Let it be more than just general apprehensions of blessings in your life. Think of specific things that you have that other people may not have. Things as simple as a lamp, a door, a lock on a door, food, food in your fridge, food in your pantry. Number two, worship God for his blessings on you in your life. 
don't just know it. Even unbelievers can know what, what God's given them, but they don't have a heart of thankfulness. Worship God. Thank God for all the blessings. Physical blessings, yes, but most importantly, spiritual blessings. Uh, Ephesians uh, 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Then number three, obey God in wholehearted obedience, internally and externally, in light of his blessings. See, God is truly the giver of every blessing. He's the giver of every physical blessing. He's the giver of every spiritual blessing. The giver of every temporal blessing. The giver of every eternal blessing. The fount of Joseph's blessing and the fount of our blessing. The fount of each blessing and the fount of every blessing. And to use the words of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Let's pray. Father, so often we're not aware of all of the blessings you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the mundane things in our life, from food to shelter to air conditioning to heat to cars. Lord, if we were to rattle off a list, we would just melt into a puddle of tears over all the good things you give us that we never thank you for. I just thank you for those, but Lord, most importantly, I thank you for Christ. I thank you that, Lord, objectively, because of your justice, we should all, every one of us in this room, be sitting in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone for eternity. And that's reality. That's, well, that's not a scare tactic. That's reality. But I thank you that you have saved us, everyone here in Christ, that you have credited to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ought to be so thankful to you for that. We ought to melt in tears day in and day out for the grace, the sheer grace you've lavished upon us, choosing us from eternity past, that we would be holy and set apart. You've justified us by the sweet blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We bless you. Help us to, to see you as the fountain of, of living water. Please tune our hearts to sing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.